0: Episode 38 What to expect from law students and recent graduates as they enter the workforce, technically speaking. My conversation with Professor Deborah Moss-Vollweiler. <music> I'm Michael D. G. Eisenberg. I'm the Tech Savvy Lawyer, blogging at the thetextheavvylawyer.page and host of the Lawyer.page podcast. In this podcast series, I'll be interviewing lawyers, judges, and others in the area of law to talk about where they see lawyers new and seasoned, taking advantage of technology in their legal work, and how all lawyers can utilize technology to better their practice, improve their services to their clients, and enhance their own lives. Deborah Moss-Borwell is a tenured professor of law at Nova Southeastern University, Shepard Broad College of Law in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. She recently served as associate dean for academic affairs for five years, as well as interim dean of the College of Law through the onset of the global pandemic. She has published more than 30 books on professionalism, teaching, learning, and attorney discipline, and is the co-author of a book on reforming legal education. Her latest work, titled, If You Can't Beat Them, Join Them, Virtually, Institutionally Managing Law Students as Consumers in a COVID. Enjoy. Professor, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Deborah, we're excited to have you here today, and to get things rolling, I like to ask every guest, what is your current tech setup? The
1: tech setup that I have now is a combination of uh, tech issued to me Mm -hmm. from my school, Mm -hmm. Uh, a combination of sort of your regular at home type office things and a combination of probably things most people don't have at home because their husband is not an audio and video engineer and producer. <laughs> so uh, for a computer, I use the one by school. It's a Microsoft Surface Pro, okay. um, uh, but I have a external wireless keyboard, a Logitech and a mouse mm-hmm. wireless. Mm-hmm. I have the external camera, much more flattering to have it mounted higher up than that lower off the laptop Surface Pro camera for everybody. Um, I also, though, right now I'm talking to you with a... An Electro Voice, and I had to write this down. I'm not going to pretend I didn't. Okay. Uh, an Electro Voice RE50 microphone with a Behringer Euphoria UM2 audio interface to my wow. USB docking station. Like I said, you can imagine that was not something I just happened to have lying around, but somebody I know did. Uh, <laughs> we we have a uh, you know kind of your run of the mill HP printer that you would keep at home for scanning and uh, printing. I don't do a lot of that heavy printing. What I do that in my office. Setup. set up if i have it's it's good for light printing and mm-hmm. scanning but okay. i don't think it's really good for heavy office kind of work um, and uh, I don't have a lot of other tech. I am I am a good user, but not an early adopter of, of tech. And I may be the only person you talk to who personally does not own a single Apple product.
0: Well, believe it or not, there are plenty of people <laughs> I talk to who don't own Apple products. Uh, what I always find interesting are those who own both Apple and Microsoft products. You know, yeah, them, I don't the Windows computer. Yeah. Okay.
1: No, I don't uh, personally. I have an Android phone. I have a Samsung phone and a Samsung tablet. And I am perfectly happy. I was just talking to my old, Child is an MIT educated engineer, mm-hmm. and she just changed jobs to an office that is entirely uh, Apple product, and she's not happy about it either. So I think people definitely, I can understand, you know, she says she thinks she and I, in her view, are maybe the last holdouts, but apparently not.
0: Nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with that. If I may ask, as you mentioned, I, I think, uh, uh, Mike, that your husband was into video and audio production.
1: Correct. He teaches that. And okay. he worked as that for you.
0: And so what is your video slash webcam that you're using? If
1: this is just the one that I have for sort of normal Zoom meetings. It's also mm-hmm. a Logitech, just a plug and play kind of. Um, he offered some other types of cameras, mm-hmm. but as he has a whole uh, things, but as this was just going to be more about the audio, right, right. Um, you know, he dug out from his vast collection. Um, and maybe you want to talk to him someday about that vast <laughs> collection because he teaches lighting. He teaches mm-hmm. audio. He teaches more than, than I do. But as I said, I'm a good user. I enjoy using it. I believe using it. I'm just not always the person who thinks about all the different possibilities. But when presented with them, I am all in.
0: Well, Deborah, so what is your camera's DPI? Do you know if it's 1081, if it's 4K? Because you I mean, you look great either way. It's just always kind of nice to know, you know, what people are using. That's
1: a great question. I would have to see, I would have to look that up. I like nope. it. I could give you the model number off the top of my head, but What's I do the model know. number? that may it's, tell me. It's a Logitech uh, D925E. And
0: I think that has a 1081 EPI, uh, DPI, but I'll look that up for, uh, for the show notes. So before we get into the main questions. I did have sort of a little extra question I want to ask. Since you are a professor and things have moved from traditional classroom more toward, you know, Zooming and web classes, What are your three favorite tech tools to use in the classroom?
1: I do use a lot of tech in the classroom. Um, I definitely use PowerPoints, which doesn't sound forward at all, but there's a way to use them. I think that's a little bit different than the reading off of a slide concept. Mm -hmm. I use them as a substitute for uh, things that I would spend a lot of time writing on a whiteboard. Um, By having things that I can use as a slide behind me uh, that I would be writing on the board, it saves me both time time and Mm -hmm. turning my back on the class. And so Mm -hmm. I think that can be a very effective use of it. Sometimes it might be I teach statutory courses. It might just be to have the statute up behind me. So students looking up instead of down and that I don't have to turn my back. The second thing that I use is any type of open type of Word document that I can use in lieu of a whiteboard to make real-time notes. Mm-hmm. Uh, my best class in high school, along with uh, a- AP Calculus, was typing. Unusual yep. combination, maybe, but I type faster and better than I write. Yep. So I will often build real-time notes on a you know, document that is projected. Again, it keeps mm-hmm. me facing the class and mm-hmm. it's a whole lot more legible. And it also preserves it, right? All Both of those also make it easier for anybody who's attending remotely, which is still happening in classroom. Maybe Mm -hmm. there are a lot of students back in, but some students are attending remotely. That makes it easier to share with them and they can see it. And again, it's captured both in the recording and then I can um, share it separately with people to have that as opposed to that substitute for writing on the board. The third thing is I do a lot of uh, video. I do a lot of, I try to use real world examples of video. Mm-hmm. For example, I teach contracts, I teach secured lending, and there are uh, a lot of uh, real life things that you can show. And I think those nothing a substitute for seeing it with someone else doing it. Brings a lot of the real world into the classroom.
0: I've got a couple of questions on what you shared with us. My first question is, do you share your PowerPoint slides with the students?
1: 100% yes, always.
0: Excellent. And what's your thinking behind that, if I may? There's
1: nothing in the PowerPoint. PowerPoint. PowerPoint that's either spoon feeding or doing the work for them. My PowerPoints are a guy, a scaffold, a framework for them to build their own self-directed learning on. To me, the PowerPoints are like looking at the picture on the front of a crossword uh, of a jigsaw puzzle box, Mm -hmm. right? It's hard to ask people to build their own model without knowing what it's supposed to look like. That's what my PowerPoints tend to do is give you what it's supposed to look like. And so I have no trouble sharing that because you still have to do the work. Excellent,
0: excellent. My other question goes to you. Mentioned this, you know, you, that your typing is better than your handwriting. Yes. That you took typing along with AP Calculus, and I've literally, I literally had this conversation about forty minutes ago uh, about how one of the best classes I took in high school was typing. I took it my sophomore year, and I've used it ever since. And um, you know, I took AP Calculus too. My, uh, though I gotta, I gotta ask. So, did you take the bar? Did you have to handwrite? Did you type on a typewriter? Uh,
1: I handwrote. I handwrote the bar when mm-hmm. I took the. When I took the bar exam. There were no computer options, mm-hmm. and typing was really reserved. I think as a extraordinary accommodation. I mean, my handwriting is bad, but I don't know that it was so bad that I would have pushed for those accommodations. I handwrote all my exams in law schools. In mm-hmm. retrospect, reading almost exclusively typed exams, I have such retroactive empathy for all those professors reading all those handwritten right. exams. Right. Uh, because I still occasionally get a, a couple. There, right. usually in many law schools today, not all, but in many law school, it used to be you could opt into typing exams. Now you opt out of typing exam. Um, and that is more considered the norm that you're going to do that, particularly um, with the remote education and remote exam administration, which has been happening over the past. Few. I think the
0: company is ExamSoft. It's been there having are several problems companies. with bars.
1: Oh yeah. ExamSoft has been working for the bar exams. That's the one that my uh, home institution, Nova Southeastern uses. Uh-huh. Um, and they have a good product and you can do a lot of things with it. They certainly did have some. some. Some uh, interesting issues with bar exams, though, that's for sure.
0: Yeah, and I remember uh, when I went to law school, um, during my time is when ExamSoft or whatever the program was at the time first came out and they allowed us to use that, which made my life a lot easier because my penmanship stinks and it takes me a lot longer to write something than to type something. And uh, I know that helped me a lot.
1: Uh, There's other products. Um, uh, ExamSoft usually, I think it's actually Exemplify is the actual exam software that's used. A lot of people use exam four. I taught part-time for another uh, university this past fall that used mm-hmm. exam four. And I didn't experience the exam taking, but I saw the result and it was as clear and neat on mm-hmm. you know, on the grading end when you get it. Mm-hmm. Um, as And there's a, there's a couple of other variety of ones. And of course, there's the issue with all of those of the add-on of proctoring versus non-proctoring. Right. And those are all different combinations you can make when you organize right. exams with a school as well.
0: Excellent. Excellent. Let's get into our questions. Uh, What three lessons should lawyers take away as law schools deal with the shift to study at home due to COVID about those entering the profession? There's a
1: couple of things that we see, and some of it is not necessarily due to COVID, but is amplified due to COVID. I think that it's important for Anyone who's been in the profession for a while to understand that law school has changed dramatically Um, in the past few years. um, Having worked in law school administration, I spent a lot of time talking to alums and practitioners and community building, and I really learned that there are different levels of understanding by lawyers as to what's actually happening in law school today compared to when they went to law school. And there has been a lot of changes, a lot of curricular changes, um, just a lot of programmatic changes, but. Covid really amplified some of those concepts um, to the degree that students coming out not only had a different experience in law school, but I think really to the point of this question, have different expectations as to what their career is going to look like and how they're going to manage their career. So the first one to me is really flexibility. I, I know when I went to law school, that is not a word I would have applied to my legal education. It was very lockstep. And I don't necessarily mean that as to you know that I didn't have a choice of classes or electives, but overall the experience was a pretty rigid one as to mm-hmm. what you did and how you earned your degree. With COVID, um, there has been a lot of choices that students have had um, with remote learning. They uh, they were able to often choose where they had their learning. Yeah. Students left their uh, temporary homes where they might have mm-hmm. gone to law school and went home. And for a lot of students, um, particularly after that first semester, that spring 2020 semester where the world shut down, coming back right. from that, a lot of students had the choice whether to come back in person or not. So they had the choice of whether to be in person, whether to be remote. For many students, they had the choice of whether to take some of their class materials synchronously or asynchronously. Mm-hmm. So they could choose not only where it happened, the mode of their teaching and interacting, but for some of them, even when they could control their educational experience. And that is something I think that new lawyers are going to want to tend to their job. Um, flexibility is something that people have grown. And, and we see this not just, right? Not just in in, mm-hmm. you, in the law student, but the flexibility of being given a little time and space to decide how and when and where to get their work done is definitely coming.
0: So I think that, in my opinion, solos and and small practitioners sort of have the advantage on that because, you know, solos aren't always in the brick and mortar. I say who with the small firms. And, you know, one of the benefits of working for me when, you know, since I started hiring law clerks over 10 years ago is, you know, they had to do some on-site, uh, you know, initiation, some kind of handholding and making sure they're on top of things. And then once they kind of were ready to be let loose, uh, they only show up to work once a week and they could do the work from wherever, uh, you know, if they want to do the work from home or a coffee shop, or whatever, just make sure they're using security procedures, you know, from uh, a VPN to making sure their laptop's password protected. I didn't care where they worked or when they worked, just as long as they met their deadlines and did, it, and did a good job. Now that COVID's happened, it's pretty much the same pattern that I've been using uh, before, except they don't come on site because of COVID restrictions. And what I did, instead of having that once a week face-to-face meeting, we would just have a virtual webcam meeting once a week and make sure everything was okay. And that seemed to work out great. And occasionally in the beginning, I'd have one or two students who wasn't exactly happy about that. Um, But now I have no complaints whatsoever. Uh, Because like you said, they want that flexibility. They don't necessarily want to have to work at the office and they don't have to worry about traveling to and fro. And quite frankly, when you're not working at the office and you don't have a hearing or a chambers conference, then you don't have to get, you know, quote unquote, that dressed up. You don't have to put on a suit and tie or a fancy blouse and skirt, which I think, you know, saves in dry cleaning and saves in further expense. But uh, I apologize. I think I interrupted you're going to go into your second suggestion.
1: No, not at all. I actually agree with you, but I don't know that all law firms are that prepared to be that flexible. Certainly some are and some aren't. And I just think that it's a potential for a gap of expectations on Mm -hmm. both sides to happen.
0: You know, I think, like I said, I think the smaller... Firms and solo practitioners are re- were ready. Solos like myself, I think we're able to bounce, uh, uh, excuse me, bounce with the COVID and uh, not miss a stride. And I think that the larger law firms are beginning to realize that they're gonna save some money when they don't have to pay for the brick and mortar uh, and the insurance and you know all the other costs that come along with having a physical office. Plus, they also get a happier employee, you know, when they don't have to, you know, spend 30, 40, 50 minutes driving into town or, you know, an hour, quote unquote, getting ready. uh, you know, and then having to turn home after all that, and then being stuck in traffic or there's a weather issue. On the other hand, people are also finding themselves to be a little bit more uh, on the clock because they can't have an excuse of, well, you know, there's bad weather outside or there's a bad traffic accident, et cetera, which means they're pretty much stuck working certain set hours uh, to make sure that everything runs smoothly for the business.
1: It is harder to draw the lines uh, oftentimes when that happens. And I think that kind of leads to my second point, which is I think many law firms, have become accustomed because of, I think, a positive push in legal education Mm -hmm. to hiring students who have had practical work. That was not necessarily, except for maybe the summer after your second year, it was really not Mm -hmm. something that was pervasive when I went to law school. But I think it's important for law firms to remember that the most recent classes of students coming out, their work experiences have most likely been entirely remote. And there may be things Mm -hmm. if they do have to come into an office that they don't know. Um, And I do want to talk about that a Little bit later, but just some even basic. Um, they may just not know the lay of the land of, of a particular downtown neighborhood or the courthouse or mm-hmm. just some really practical things, and that's probably out of the expectation for lawyers because if they look at someone's resume and they see, oh, well, you've worked for this firm and this firm all through your legal education, there is easy to make an assumption that they have right. a certain body of knowledge, but that may not. Well, you know,
0: add, adding to your comment about how having work experience when you get up, you know, by the time you you've left law schools and poor and how law school education has changed, you know, in the past, as you mentioned, you know, after your second year of law school, then you would you know, maybe get an internship or an externship somewhere. And then law school started encouraging you to, you know, work part-time, you know, if you were like a part-time student out and working part-time during the day to get that legal experience. And then they started kind of going toward, you know, teaching lawyers how to be a lawyer in the business. In other words, the business of being a lawyer, not just being a lawyer, you know, how to run a firm, how to run a practice, et cetera. And then what really seems to be needed, in my opinion, and this is a problem I have with clerks that I hire on, who typically are law students, is they don't know how to use software. Uh, and my perfect example is Microsoft Word. You know, it's one thing to be able to type, but they don't know how to format. There's so many tabs. Um, they don't know how to create a table of contents automatically, how to um, do the citations automatically. And it's little things like that, that, you know, I find myself spending time. Time having to teach law students, and hopefully the law schools will kind of catch up to that aspect. Of,
1: um. Yeah, I think there's two things. First of all, um, part of what you see driving that change in legal education was the ABA accreditation stand. Mm-hmm. So there used to be a prohibition about law students working more than a certain number of hours of week. Right. So that went away, and that changed sort of the advice that um, career development offices and law schools could give students about. Mm-hmm. Work. The second thing is you're absolutely right. There has been a growth in the business side of law. And I can tell you that because I was in on that um, on the very early stage. So in the late 90s, I started a workshop uh, at my law school a law office management workshop, and it was mm-hmm. considered controversial. It was right. considered totally out of the norm. So much so that in 2000, I want to say like in January of 2000, the ABA Journal, the national magazine, did a full page article about this uh, wave of teaching the business of lawyering. I mean, that was considered news, right? right. In January of 2000. I mean, it, it also accompanied a truly unfortunate picture, which is why I don't share maybe that article very much. Uh, but it was. I was. About, you know, it was. Uh, still 90s hair in 2000. What can I tell you? <laughs> but, um, you know, it was really considered cutting edge to be doing that. And we've gone past the curve. I wrote a Law Review article about it years ago, tracking which schools were and weren't teaching law office management and what they were teaching. That has passed. That is considered perfectly normal. There's been accreditation standards that require every ABA accredited school to guarantee that students are graduating with six credits of experiential learning, which can either through simulations like workshops or mm-hmm. through live content experience. So uh, to me, that wave is complete and past. And you're right, the next wave is absolutely the technology one. And you're starting to see schools having more and more specific training. But the fact is, there's a lot of people in who work in law schools who don't have that knowledge right. and still have the expectation that somehow technology is something somebody else does right. separate from your lawyer. But I think that is going to we're on the beginning curve Shh. of that. And I think I expect it to be much like the business of lawyering curve that in 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 years, we're going to be talking about it, that that cycle has completed and it's now. Part-
0: well, you know, as a solo, I can tell you, I am the tech uh, person here. So when I have an issue, I, you know, I got to fix it. And what I could, I could lament on that because it has its benefits. Uh, and then it has its detriments. Um, of course, I get, I'm get i the one that gets to pick up the tech uh, that I use in the office, but I'm also the one that has to fix it. So I think, uh, so we got uh, one and two. So what would be number three?
1: I think the third is the overall reckoning to me that I think we see, right? People talk about, you can't go anywhere reading about the great resignation and people mm-hmm. reevaluating sort of their life choices when it comes to their work. I mean, it, it, it has been a tough year or two mm-hmm. for everybody. And I hear, what I see is that law students are potentially less willing to take jobs that they're not going to like just for the money or the experience mm-hmm. than maybe they used to be. I mean, I hear employers lamenting how they have jobs open and, you know, nobody's applying for them. Um, and sometimes, unfortunately, when you look at them and you look at sort of the salary or the requirements, it's not that hard to see that they are a little bit in that older mindset in that old school. And I think I'm not necessarily surprised that a lot of law students are not clamoring for the job because. It's been a rough few years and people are coming to the conclusion of, you know, I want to do something that is really going to make me want to get up in the morning and motivate right. me and you know, I am not going to take the job just for the money or just for the experience that maybe right. happened more frequently in the past. Um I do think there's been sort of a shift in reevaluating life priority. Um
0: Well, I, I have a question though. So I'm not arguing with about saying, but those those graduates if you will or those students who are not taking the job for the experience or taking the job for the money. Where are they going for work?
1: You know, there are enough jobs out there that they can afford to be a little more choosy, or they're taking their law degree and bringing it into business. Mm-hmm. Or they're just, you know, deciding, uh, taking time and, and perhaps piecing together sort of gig economy type uh, law right. jobs, right? Uh, rather than committing themselves, you know, it used to be a saying when I came out of law school, there were certain firms that you knew, you know, if you don't come in on Saturday, don't bother coming in on Sunday, you know, I mean, <laughs> right? That was sort of the, right. Expression and there are unfortunately still law firms that exude that attitude. Wow. Um, yeah, there there are. I mean, you know, I don't know that that's the majority of law firms, and I'm certainly not saying that. Um, but when you have students who come back from an interview and and what they're getting from a law firm is, you know, you know, you're you're starting at the bottom. You will work when I say you'll work. You will work till I say it's done. Sure, you want to put the work in, you have to do that. But that's not the experience that I think coming out of COVID and generational. You know, that people are looking to see their careers start at, you know, is there sometimes an unreal, unreasonable expectation mm-hmm. by law students that they're going to start out at a salary and level control that, of course, is unreasonable? Sure, but there's also, I think, uh, still potentially a little bit of a gap between th- what those coming out of law do to balance their work life and to motivate them, and what some law firms are expecting out of new lawyers. Um, I think it's going to have to meet somewhere in the middle, mm-hmm. um, and uh, and I think it. has Has been, as I said, amplified by COVID and people having flexibility and having different kinds of experiences. It's just simply changing, it's adding that fuel to the change in the expectation of what my life is going to look like.
0: Excellent, excellent. Well, thank you for sharing. Uh, Let's move on to the second question. What are three ways that remote learning has impacted students regarding their entry, expectation, and knowledge into the lawyer workforce? I realize that may be sort of um, in tune before we left off. It
1: it does, but I want to get a little more specific. I think there's a way to, you know, I think that the first is the tech usage. I mean, obviously, the pandemic pushed all of us mm-hmm. um, into tech usage. And I think that for the most part, most of my law students mm-hmm. were more tech savvy than I was, right? I okay. did not have anybody appear in class as a cat accidentally. Um, you know, that didn't happen. Um, and occasionally, if I would have a remote teaching Zoom hiccup or whatever type of situation it was, I would have multiple students immediately offering me quicker, better solutions. Okay. I think I would have gotten there, right? it give me a few minutes and I would have gotten there to figure it out. But I had people who were very much um, far more on the ball. Um, I have a question as to whether um, that's going to become the expectation. Um, You know, you say you're the tech person in your solo practitioner. I'm wondering if moving a lot more of practice onto tech and and firms being more flexible, are they going to expect a certain level of tech fluency from new graduates even more than they have? Are they going to become the tech people for some of the older? Partner who don't want to be the tech people because I think it's important to remember that not everybody who is a law student or is in the younger generation has had the access to technology that maybe everyone thinks they do. There has been uh, quite a lot of expectation, I think, of tech exposure and greatness from new lawyers, and that's just not true. Um, there's a lot of populations of students who struggled with technology during the pandemic for a variety of reasons. You,
0: you know, the clerks that I, that I bring on. I more, more often than not seem to be assisting them with their tech issues. Uh, and I say this not as a complaint, I say this as an observation in response to your comment about firms expecting those that they bring on to be more uh, tech fluent. Um, and I, you know, I really, it goes back to what I was saying earlier, where I think the schools really need to step in now and, and you know, have some sort of you know, basic, you know, this is how you use Microsoft Word. If you have this type of connection problem, this is how you fix it. If you're not on a VPN in the public, you know, you know, to be blunt, you're an idiot, but (laughs) that's more of a personal comment. Um, uh, But it's, yeah, I, and that may be an unrealistic expectation of the employer.
1: But I think it's also, you know, I think it's clear that you're far on the tech spectrum. Um, I don't think you're, I wouldn't put you in the, uh, to put the law school language, the reasonable person's shoes, maybe of every lawyer out there. And so I think there are quite a lot of lawyers who don't know what VPNs are, Um, you know, and so there are, I think that there is, those are potentially the people who have this belief that this new generation is going to be their tech savior, which you're right, may or may not be true. Um, but again, I'm not even sure that it's fair to even put on that even thought because there are a lot of students who um, haven't, who don't come from the resource um, that have any kind of technology fluency. We saw that all law schools saw that um, in the immediate 2020 shift to remote learning, people didn't have the, the at-home Wi-Fi to be right. able to attend classes regularly. Right. And then of course, with the shift to remote bar exams, it just deepened that hole of, of thinking about the fact that there are quite a lot of people who don't have the resources to carry the tech that may be expected. I
0: think one interesting thing will be to see how, if the ABA model rules change. In what way? Well, you're supposed to use reasonable precautions when using technology. I can't remember the, which one point something... It's C. a very
1: general wording. Yeah,
0: it's a very general wording, but it's gonna be, I, I, but my I think my question becomes: Is that level of understanding going to increase? So
1: the interpreted Get, level of what it means to be a reasonably prudent right, layer with right. technology, it should increase. Right.
0: I, and you know, it, it will be interesting to see. Um, but I also wonder if not only the uh, ambiguous interpretation, but if the literal definition becomes more stringent. You know, if the bars, if the bars, going to say, hey, you've really got to you've really got to be taking, you know, more than just common precautions. You need to you need to have some sort of specific tra- strategy to make sure that you're your internet traffic is not being monitored, that you have certain backups provided by certain providers that are like based in the United States or um, that have so large of a server farm that there's more than sufficient backups of what you have. Um,
1: It's important to remember that those are model rules, that each state bar has its own rules regulating the bar. And the different states have definitely taken different approaches. Florida was one of the first, if not the first to implement a specific technology CLE requirement Mm -hmm. as part of its continuing education um, requirement. That came out of a um, commission called Vision 2016, Mm -hmm. which was a three-year commission that the Florida Bar set up. Mm-hmm. Um, in four parts. One was to talk about access to justice. One was to talk about legal education. One was to talk about bar admission. Um, and then the fourth was to talk about technology. That specific recommendation came out of the technology mm-hmm. um, quadrant of that commission right. and turned into a new CLE requirement for mm-hmm. lawyers in Florida. And, it, you know, that a certain number of those credits that you had to take had to be specifically technology. I happen to have chaired the legal education portion of that commission, which is which is why I know what happened uh, with it um and there were also some reforms that came out of of all of that but the technology one i think was particularly ahead of i think other state bars. so while the model rules may not change individual state bars may be slowly starting to Mm -hmm. lead the way Mm -hmm. with with certain of those requirements Hmm.
0: it'd be interesting to see wait so we got two we need one
1: more answer um i Okay. Um, I think that um, the remote learning and the remote experiences of students, specifically with regard to um, their experiential learning, Mm -hmm. also, I think, has impacted what a lot of people like to call soft skills, and I like to call Mm -hmm. professional identity skills. I think that's a more modern name for it. And we talked briefly about this, how students have maybe had experiences working, um, Mm -hmm. even if they've worked in law school clinics, um, or, you know, live client, in other words, Live client experiential right. education—they um, have definitely had a little bit of a difference. Um, they might have the drafting and they might have the research, but they don't necessarily have the uh, interpersonal skill that you need. I was thinking about this, and I was thinking, for example, when I leave an online webcam meeting, mm-hmm. um, I wave. I have never waved at another human being leaving a meeting in my life before using a webcam and exiting a webcam meeting. That's just not how I leave a meeting in person. I don't wave at it. So if you have come through your live client experiential education and been working only through this, mm-hmm. your body language in a room, your way of meeting people in a room, all these other interpersonal professional identity skills of talking to people need to be learned for in person. And maybe they haven't been in the way that people who had experiences doing live client education or experiences in person had. It's a, it becomes a dichotomy to me of what people have learned from mm-hmm. their jobs and from their clinical education rather than a package. I think they've excelled in pieces of it and maybe right. through no fault of anybody just missed out on other aspects of working in, in person that, that you learn, you learn other things than the law or drafting or any of those other things. You learn a lot of other skills, I think, by working in person with people in an office together. Mm-hmm. Oh I, yeah. The, the inner
0: office, the, the inner office social skills. I, I get that. I you know I was very fortunate to have uh, some great experience during law school working for the, the Ohio Attorney General's office at the time. And, you know, I was I was in an office. I was, you know, I, I dealt with other attorneys, secretaries, law clerks, um, you know, the uh, section chief and the assistant section chief. It was, you know, I had the whole dichotomy of, a, of an office uh, and the experience was fantastic. But like you said, that's, that's a subtle experience that you're not going to get necessarily having uh, web Zoom meetings. Uh, I don't was... think
1: it comes through with web Zoom meetings. And I think mm-hmm. for many, some lawyers, if they're just, if students are working and the only thing they're doing is sort of that asynchronous remote work. Here's a, Memo assignment. Right. I mean, there's the even the idea of, for example, cultural competency, right? right. Understanding talking to people who are just different than mm-hmm. you is is mm-hmm. important as a mm-hmm. lawyer. And you may not get that. Whereas before the pandemic, if you were doing a clinic in person, you at least had a better chance, I think, of of picking up on some of those professional identity skills. So I think that's going to be something that um, is going to be an adjustment when when law when law students now get into the workforce and some of their time may be in person or maybe even all of it coming soon. Not sure.
0: Excellent. Yeah, it's, it's something that we're going to have to think about, um, definitely, especially if this pandemic continues. Well, let's take a step back for our last question. What are three things about technology, software or hardware? That should lawyers be aware that law students and graduates may have may have varying levels of knowledge to use effectively in the practice of law? Uh,
1: there are a couple of things that um, I think about technology in the sort of current law school environment to think about. Um, overall, I think that that it is a, a positive thing that students are getting so much work experience. One thing I do hear both students and uh, sometimes lawyers talk about, though, is that, you know, you talked a little bit about having to train students in, mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. certain things. But when students have had extensive work experiences using different kinds of software and doing things certain ways, uh, software for closings or, you know, using Clio, then they don't come in as much of a blank slate with those types of, of ideas right. as they used to. And they may have quirks and preferences mm-hmm. in using those that maybe didn't have in years past. So the more we expose students to, while they are still students, when they become a new lawyer and they join a firm, there can be a, a mismatch or requirement to read. Well, we don't do it that way. We don't use that. Right. And so there is a little bit of an unlearning. I, I don't think that's necessarily terrible, but it's new for a lot of mm-hmm. lawyers, right? They used, to, they used to say, well, students didn't have any of this. So they would just do what we said because they were that right. Right slate and they're not a blank slate anymore. So I think that's one thing. A second thing is that I notice students and new lawyers use hardware differently than I do. To me, my phone is a personal technology tool. And yet I people doing more work and more reading and more interaction on these tiny little devices than I would ever consider doing. Mm -hmm. My computer is a work tool. My phone, my tablet are reading or other types of interaction. Tools, but I think they're more fluent across mm-hmm. different types of hardware, and that can that can run into security concerns. You know, they right. may not be thinking about that, or just simply um, different perspectives by firms. I mean, sometimes I, I look at, the, at at people on their phone, and I think I can't believe you're filling that out or doing that on your phone. It make, it makes me nuts to think about it, but they're perfectly fine with that. And so I think there's going to have to be more either. Flexibility by firms, but also more education as to all the ramifications of using different devices um, with students. Um, I never, I will not type an important email on my phone because I know I am likely to miss something, read it wrong, or have horrific typos because of of the nature for it. But other people, you know, I find a lot of younger lawyers are as fluent on that as they are. Um, And and the last thing I think is that, um, and this is related to technology because how it happens, how people research and find answers to things has definitely evolved over the years. Um, Certainly when I was in law school, uh, you could not Google the answer to anything. Mm -hmm. Um, And if you didn't know how to find it through a traditional method, you went into the library and you talked to a librarian. Right. And you learned how to use resources that maybe you hadn't been exposed to otherwise. There are so many ways to get to answers. Some of them, of course, better than others. Right. Um, that I think that technology has changed the way people expect to get to answers, want right. to get to answers, and use technologies to get to answers. And I'm not sure that there is a complete alignment between some law firms and the way they want answers to be found and um, the way people use technology to find answers. to
0: Well, you know, it's funny you say that because I've seen, it's it, it's happened to me uh, more often than not with some of the clerks that they're like, Mike, I, I know you gave me this project on legal issue X and I, I, I've i been looking at some of these legal resources and I just don't know where to start. I mean, I'm talking about this at the very beginning and, and I like it I'm it's just, you know, to try Googling it. I mean, I simply say, and I'm not saying that's, that the Google is going to give you the answer for what you need in the end, but it's going to give you an answer to at least the basics to give you an idea of where to go. So I'm kind of looking at a little bit reverse, you know, The internet is like open the doors for you know, people to look everywhere. And you're saying that the the firms want you to start with the specific parts, the specific legal resources. But sometimes the introduction to those legal resources are best start with a Google research.
1: I'm not saying they want to there that they don't want them to start with the internet. I'm saying they don't want them to end with the internet. (laughs) But
0: but all of us, I would think, have been better trained not to just go based on an internet.
1: Yes, to answer. certainly if you're listening to what's happening in your legal writing class or an advanced right. legal research class. But it's awfully tempting to think that Google is going to give you the answer to things when, of course, it's not. Have they been better trained? Yes. Is Mm -hmm. it easy to shortcut it? Yes. It's also easy to shortcut getting better training on legal resources. Because, right, right, I think that when you didn't have the ability to Google it, which I'm not necessarily saying is a bad thing. And I agree with your concept. It is often the best way to orient yourself and dive yourself into that. But when you had to actually go and say, okay, there is this resource and I'm going to walk into the library and this librarian Mm -hmm. is going to actually train me how to actually use this resource Fully, all of a sudden, the world changes a lot right. from maybe what you could learn in any type of a basic first year class, right? Right. And I just don't know that that's happening in the same way because we have all generation of students who haven't spent any time in library because not even nope. to study like they used to because of COVID.
0: Don't, don't the law schools still require like a manual uh, shepherdization with books? Yeah, I had to do that. I mean, mind you, that was no, no, no. we won't go there.
1: <laughs> no, no, <laughs> but.
0: But, but even if they haven't had to do that the old fashioned way, if you will, I mean, the legal writing professors, correct me if I'm wrong, are still saying you've got to shepherdize your work.
1: Of but, course you do, of
0: course. But, but it almost sounds like they're skipping that part. They're like, hey, I found this great answer on Google and you know I don't need to do any more. That's no, what I was I'm hearing. Not,
1: I'm not, I'm not. no, I'm not saying that, okay? okay. I'm not saying that students aren't doing, but that to me, right? Finding a case, shepherdizing it is very basic level legal research, sure. right? That, that is sort of first level to me. What I'm talking about is using the vast group of databases now used to be books that they have and what can they really get from them that could really give them much deeper, better answers. In other words, that's where I'd like to see students spend their time. That's where I think students used to have uh, more understanding that I can go into a library, a law Mm -hmm, librarian mm -hmm. will teach me how to use all of these things previously in books, now mostly in databases. And I'm going to have all these tools. That's just happening, I think, just because of exposure to the libraries and the ability to shortcut that by using internet tools. That's all. Now,
0: correct me if I'm wrong. I think we got all three answers to the Uh, third question. We did. That being said, Deborah, thank you for coming on. Uh, It was great having you. Where can people find you?
1: Well, that's a great question because I am not always in the same place that I usually am. So my permanent appointed position is at Nova Southeast University, Mm Shepard Ward College of Law in sunny Fort Lauderdale. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So uh, you can find me on the faculty webpages there. Uh, Right now in 2022, I am serving as a visiting professor at the Elizabeth Howe School of Law at Pace University in not that sunny New York during the winter. Uh, So that has its own own ideas with it. But you can also find me through there. Um, My email is uh, I have to think about that. Um, I can be found either at volweiler at nova.edu, which is my permanent email. Mm-hmm. Or more, often, more often than not, I can be found at d underscore at law.pace.edu.
0: Deborah, thank you for your time
1: today. I've, I've enjoyed being here and talking with you. Likewise.
0: Thank you for joining me on this episode of the techsavvylawyer.page podcast. Our next episode will be posted in about two weeks. If you have any ideas about a future episode, please contact me at dj at the techsavvylawyer.page. Have a great day and happy luring.